0: dramatic pause um can we turn the lights on I like to see everybody there is a lot of dude energy in the room um but that's okay uh yeah um it's been fun just hearing some of what's been going on at the women's retreat please do continue praying for them as they wrap up the weekend um there it is hi everybody how's everybody doing Good, good. Introduce yourself to someone. Let's get some energy in the room. The dude energy is low. Um, apparently, it's a very low energy. Um, introduce yourself to someone. Go. All right, that's enough of that, said the introverts among us, myself included, I'm like you. I just stand here, right? I get to ask you to do it, and then I just sort of stand here, like some of you, so you have permission to just stay where you are. Uh, We are in a series in the Gospel of John looking at uh, the life of Jesus, and we've called this series Encountering Jesus because the vision of our church is that we would be a community known for breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. That's what we're about. That's what we do here. That's what we believe that God has called us to, breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. And the Gospel of John has all of these various encounters with Jesus where we see how Jesus responds uh, to various people in various circumstances and, and what we learn about him and then what we might learn about our own encounter with Jesus, what we might anticipate in our own relationship with him, um, maybe for some of you, your first encounter with him. And there may be no scene that so captures the heart of this series as the one that Rob just read for us. This is uh, somewhat famously known as the story of the woman caught in adultery, appropriately so. Now, there is uh, there's sort of some introductory Uh, comments that I need to make, because those of you who are looking in a physical Bible, which I would encourage you to do, um, see this very interesting little superscription above our passage, and then these brackets around our passage that say, at least in, in my version they say, and the version in the Bible underneath the chair in front of you says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811 and then it has a little footnote, number two. Some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811, others add the passage here after 736, or after 2125, or after Luke 2138, with variations in the text. Um, (laughs) We could get really stuck in the mud here, but here's what this is saying. First of all, there's actually something for us here other than just interesting sort of historical data. This should be one of those moments where you see the unbelievably meticulous care with which the scriptures have been preserved over the centuries. We have, and and I won't go into all the detail here, this is something that that we even talk about uh, in one of our discipleship courses, but we have, I'll just put it as simply as I can, we have more copies of the Bible than we have of any ancient document by such an enormous percentage that literally nothing in the ancient world comes close, and yet we gladly, in a whatever, in an 11th grade English class, put the Iliad in your hands and say, yeah, this is probably about what Homer came up with, or whatever. And yet the scriptures have that times like a factor of a thousand in terms of how these were preserved, so much so that if there's any doubt at all that something didn't belong in the scriptures, it tended to be taken out. And so you have an entire science called textual criticism. It's an entire field of study um, really related primarily to the scriptures themselves that looks at, okay, what was original here? What, what did the original author actually put pen to page or whatever they used back then to, you know, papyrus or whatever? Um, and, and how close can we get to the original? If there's any doubt, let's take it out. This is one of literally less than a handful of passages that there's just enough doubt on both sides that they feel like, all right, we're going to leave it there, but just so that you know that this one is a little bit different in that it doesn't show up in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, we're going to put these brackets around it. Here's, here's where I am going to land on this, and then we'll jump in. We won't spend all of our time on this. Where I land on this is... It seems like the overwhelming amount of evidence says this was not here in John's original gospel manuscript. This probably is not original to John, the the person who wrote the rest of this gospel, Jesus' best friend. This probably wasn't something that he put pen to page and actually wrote himself. It's probably something that was picked up and added later. At the same time, this is almost certainly Something that it was originally written down very early in the accounts of Jesus. It seems like you have a lot of stuff flying around in the ancient world before we get sort of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we, as we now know them. And so um, I'll try and be careful. I might slip a little bit. But where I would land on this is this certainly happened. This almost certainly, certainly happened exactly. It has all the marks of Jesus. It has all the marks of his interactions with people. It, it, it just And it's almost certainly why it was included in manuscripts, because probably none of the other Gospels could quite figure out where to fit it. And they were like, but this happened, and it's amazing, and it needs to be told, and it's such an important part of the Jesus legacy. Where are we going to put it, right? And so this almost certainly happened. I'll try and be careful not to say that John wrote it, but I might slip up. But this is something that, that ju- just rings true with the rest of what we have in the Gospels, okay? That was for like five percent the rest of you, the sermon starts now. Um, okay, let's let's look at this account. Uh, so this comes fresh off the heels of one of Jesus's uh, kind of more controversial conversations and teachings that he has publicly. And it begins with this interesting line, they went each to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is just a little bit of a reminder at the front end of this story. Jesus did not really have a home base. He didn't have uh, anywhere he would go back to Galilee, which was his hometown, probably to stay with family and friends and things. But in the three years that he's out publicly, uh, in one place he says the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Foxes have holes, uh, yada yada yada. But but I don't have anywhere that I stay. So Jesus is very much kind of working the Airbnb. You know, he's he's kind of working what he can in his network. Probably the mention that he goes to Mount of Olives means that he goes to the home of Mary Martha and Lazarus, who we've met previously in the story. This was probably as close to home base as he had in Jerusalem. Just kind of an interesting point when you imagine Jesus' life. It's a very, very, the the word that comes to mind is it's a very itinerant life. It's a very kind of, I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Uh, Anybody have an open bed kind of a thing. This is the God of the universe has put himself in this position of a wandering itinerant. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So stuff is starting to get real. Um, Jesus is very much on, on the radar of the powers that be, whether that be political powers, religious powers. All of that is starting to ramp up. And instead of running from it, in this case, Jesus is right there in the temple, right? This is like, I don't know, going to the parking lot, of the local mega church and preaching outside while people are parking their cars, right? Like this is this is this is a sort of a knowing act of opposition to what's going on in the temple. He's there, he's set up shop, and people are coming to him early in the morning. The scribes and the Pharisees, okay. Now, now, <laughs> this just kind of pops out of nowhere. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. You have to realize how jarring this is. It's early in the morning. Right? It's kind of a picture, sort of a church gathering, right? And boom, all of a sudden, I was like a little tempted to like rehash this, but it'd be a little weird, right? Boom, bursting through the doors. There's this kerfuffle. And then all of a sudden, there's this woman and you can imagine what sort of state she's in. She's just been caught in the act of adultery. And the way that this is, is laid out is um, it's not like we found out that she's committing adultery. It's caught in the act of adultery is the very specific way that the original language wants to capture. And boom, all of a sudden she's in the midst. She's in, a, she's in a worship gathering. She was brought there, which means she lives close enough that she's probably a local. So now she's in front of friends and family and people that she knows. And she's just standing in the middle of this teaching. We'll keep going. I want you to get a a sense of the whole story. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Which is true, by the way. They're not twisting the law there. Go back to the law, go back to Leviticus, go back to Deuteronomy. Um, This is true. What they're saying is true. Somebody who is caught in the act of adultery, actually caught in the act, you stone him. OK? Brutal. Absolutely brutal stuff. So they're not lying. That, that part isn't twisted. This, they said, to test him that they might have some charge against him. OK So the author this is actually one of the reasons why they put it in John, because John is a big fan of sort of parenthetical explanation of what's actually going on. And uh, what's actually going on here? is, uh, first of all, John is telling us, their main motive isn't, oh no, a horrible thing has happened, how do we make it right? Oh no, we care about justice and righteousness being done. So let's, let's, let's go to someone more righteous than us who can sort this out for us. No, 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 they're testing him. This is a trap for Jesus. How is it a trap? It's a trap, just think about it. It's a trap because either Jesus is going to go, yep, that's what the law says, stone her. Okay? Which, by the way, and I don't want to get too graphic here, I know there's little kids in here, but like stoning is wild. It's like a wild way to, to go. I mean, you, you've got to pick up pretty heavy stones, right? So either now Jesus, who has become known as this gentle shepherd-like figure, this kind man who loves the marginalized and takes care of the weak and the poor and is inclined to forgive sin is either going to say, yup, game on. And then he would be, his reputation would be ruined, right? Or he's going to say what they think he's going to say, which is no big deal. No, grace, grace, grace. The law doesn't matter. Now they've got a religious charge against him. Ooh, he does contradict the law of Moses, right? Okay, step back from this. What are some details here or some questions that this raises for you? I'm asking that somewhat rhetorically, but I do just want you to take a minute or two. Look at this scene. What what questions, what are you curious about? What stands out to you? What's omitted here? You think someone caught in the act of adultery can't be caught alone, right? (laughs) Where's the guy? Where's the man? That's that's an interesting question. Good. What else? How convenient. Jesus is, it's early in the morning, y'all. Okay? Jesus is teaching. They know when he's going to be there. He's done this for a couple days. We, we kind of get the sense of. And it just so happens that they catch this woman in that moment at a perfect moment to drag her in front of him. This has all, all of, of the whiff of a setup. right? How convenient. How convenient. Just just keep that in mind, right? What does Jesus do? What does he literally do? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. <laughs> so, huge, boom, into the doors. Ah, 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 the crowd. Jesus, what do you say? She's wrong. We caught her in the act. We're going to stone her, or do you not care what Moses says? A little weird, right? <laughs> You're like, when is he going to stop? It's a weird thing to do, right? This is one of those details that like, oh, I'll give anything to know what he wrote on the ground. We don't know. We just don't know. Other than it's a very interesting reaction. It's a very surprising reaction. Look, I'll, I'll give you I'll give some, some of the options here. Um, maybe he wrote a scripture passage, Right? People suggest maybe Deuteronomy 13.9 or Exodus 23.1 or these various passages that talk about like, hey, don't, don't add to someone's sin by, by bringing uh, evil witness against them. Don't, don't be complicit in someone's sin in that way. Um, we're told in the Old Testament that 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 God, that Yahweh, writes the law on the tablets with his, his finger. Maybe it's Jesus going, Oh, I remember doing that. Yeah, this is what it looked like. Right? I'm the lawgiver, not just an interpreter of the law like you, the giver of the law. Maybe it's a stall tactic, because he's human. And he realizes, okay, like <laughs> big moment here, um, just, just because he's God incarnate doesn't mean necessarily, we don't get this sense that he, three days prior to this, was preparing himself, like this is a human moment, he's, he's caught in a human moment, maybe he's just taking a moment and saying, okay, this is a big moment, this is a really, maybe he's praying, right, God, what do you want me to say here? You feel the tension of it. You feel like, whoa, this is, this, is a, this is a fork in the road for Jesus' ministry. What's he going to do here? So verse 7, they say, as they continue to ask him, as they continue. So you get a sense, Jesus was a lot more courageous than I just was. He's down there for a while. <laughs> and he's building the tension. And maybe there's part of him that hopes they'll just go away and realize the absurdity of what they're doing. Maybe he's hoping that, that cooler heads will prevail, and in the 30 seconds it took you guys to go, where's the guy? How convenient that maybe the crowd would push back and this woman would be spared by the sheer absurdity of the setup. Whatever it is, though, they just, they just keep after him. So he stands up and said to them, let him who is without sin Among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. You may be familiar with these words. I I bet if you maybe haven't been around church or or the Bible very much, maybe this is something you've heard. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What Jesus is not saying, at least it doesn't seem like what he's saying, is the only way that you have a right to call sin, sin, and do something about it is if you yourself are morally perfect. Instead, what he's actually doing is he's going back to the law, which is why some people think that those are the passages that he writes. And one of the things that the law says is the law says that a witness, first of all, the standard of the law to bring someone to this kind of judgment is enormously high. So one of the things that stands out about the Old Testament law among the cultures of that time is its standard for witness is enormously high. You have to have two witnesses that were there that saw the same exact thing. It wasn't like our legal system where you can, whatever, argue to, to the point of reasonable doubt or whatever or if you have enough evidence. It's like two witnesses saw it, were there, and here's the important thing, we're not complicit in the act. Whether yeah, And that's, that's not just in a case like this, but that's all different kinds of things. The theft and murder and all these things. So it seems like what Jesus is saying is, if any of you are not complicit in what's happening here, if you have no sin to answer for in this whole circumstance that you've cooked up, go ahead, fulfill the law, and we'll stone her. It's brilliant. It's genius. Guys, it's a risk. It's an enormous risk. Because there could be someone that says, how convenient. We were there. We have nothing to answer for here. And I wonder, is if as he's down on one knee writing, one of the things that Jesus is doing that we're told he does throughout his ministry is he's searching their hearts. Is he searching their hearts? And he realizes they're all complicit. This is a massive setup. What he literally says is he says, the one who is without sin, he actually gives an imperative. He gives a command. Should pick up the stone and and throw it at her. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. I love this detail. Beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And when they heard it, they went away. That went away is this great word. It's sort of like a drifting away. It's sort of like a. If you picture a, you know, a, a dandelion in the wind, and sort of one by one, these things wisp away. That's kind of the image that we get here. Is they just sort of slowly, like, oh, we thought, we thought we nailed this moment, and instead they sort of drift away. And we're told the older ones leave first. I love that, right? We think of. The older you get, the more spiritually mature you should be. And that's true. And you know what spiritual maturity looks like? Not a decreasing awareness of your sin, often an increasing awareness of your sin. And it's the older heads who say to the young guys, hey, we should go. (laughs) Right? I love that. I love that we see that embodied here. Just a couple observations about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, scribes don't show up a lot in, in John's Gospel. The scribes are uh, biblical scholars. right? They're not, they're not scribes. Scribes is sometimes a really unhelpful translation in the New Testament. It is what they were called. But we think of just someone who sits and, and writes something down, someone who's copying the Bible or, or whatever the stuff that I talked about at the beginning. Yeah, that's some of it. But really what a scribe was was an expert in the law. They were were the lawyers of God's people. They were the, probably lawyer isn't even the best way, they were sort of the ethicists. They were were, uh, business ethics, right? Like they were the the ethicists of that time. And this is such a reminder that, I want to be careful how I say this, because it's not always the case, but it can be the case, that biblical literacy and spiritual maturity don't always go together. Um, Knowing your Bible really, really well and actually living out the kind of life that the Bible calls you to, unfortunately, there's a way to study the Bible that avoids heart change. And a lot of times we think that we can mask the lack lack of heart change in our lives by flexing biblical, biblical awareness biblical literacy. Yeah, but I really know my, but I know my Bible better than you. So I'm, I'm the better Christian, full stop. Now look, we're a church that cares about discipleship. I want you to know your Bible desperately. I think that it's a wonderful thing. But there is so much evidence in the history of the church, capital C, uh, churches like ours, that oftentimes the people who know the Bible the best can wield it as a weapon rather than as something that invites you to a loving God of the universe, invites you into a life of joy and peace and surrender to God. Instead, oftentimes, that is used to to push people away. And we just see that so clearly here. I mean, (laughs) it's so obvious. They give absolutely zero thought to this woman and her humanity in this case. Can we see that? Like, they literally say, what should we do? Uh, the, the law says to stone such women. And they literally say such women. It's like such women, as all y'all could point out in 30 seconds, whoa, 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 two to tango here, right? You can, see, you can see the obvious sort of power structures here, the obvious marginalization, the misogyny against this woman that her humanity doesn't matter. Like, if we can catch Jesus and destroy one life, Bring it on. If we can actually tear down this power structure that's threatening our power structure, and all we have to do is sacrifice one woman, set her up, make her do a vile thing, clearly involves some man. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the guy is standing there, and he's part of the one saying, yeah, what do we do to such women, right? There's evidence of that nonsense in, in the ancient world, especially, if not in our world too, right? Oh, this type of woman. You know these type of women. All of this has gone unchecked because they're blinded by the fact that this guy is threatening our power. This guy is saying that we don't actually belong as the ones who get to interpret Scripture. We're not the actual access point to God. And they're willing to kill to preserve that, right? Like this, (laughs) and they're really, really knowledgeable Bible scholars. You just kind of have to sit with that. I don't have an application other than to say, that's reality. And maybe some of you are here and your suspicions against Christianity are precisely because you say, some of the people who I've known who know their Bibles best have been some of the most obnoxious, judgmental, horrible, hard-hearted people I've ever met. And I would just say, yeah, that's, <laughs> unfortunately, there's a legacy of that, but our Bible, our scriptures don't hide that. So yeah, yeah, that's a real danger and fear. And by the way, the one that we're actually calling you to are not religious Bible scholars. We're calling you to Jesus, and Jesus hated that stuff. Okay, That's what's happening here. He judges that stuff. He's the one who sends them away, not her. Now there's this moment. This is an incredibly poignant moment. They've been sent away. They're drifting away. You get the sense, just imagine being in the crowd for this moment, right? This challenge comes, this woman, she's in this very incredibly vulnerable moment. You're watching this. My man gets down on one knee. You're like, what's he doing? <laughs> right? Like we don't, they don't have big screens showing him. They're just like, where did he go? Right? Like he takes a knee and then all of a sudden everybody's leaving. All these powerful people are leaving. And now, here's what results. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Just he and this woman. Imagine the hush over the crowd, right? I can feel it in this room. Kind of feel the tension of this scene. One of the most profound encounters that Jesus had. Again, it's almost certainly why they put it in. They said, how do we leave out the woman? I know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can't figure out where it goes in your gospel. Like, it's got to be in there, We're putting it in it, Right? He's standing there with this woman. Now, what's interesting is she's still very much a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, right? Her, her sin has been, you have to, um, from, from the first page of the Bible, when your sin is revealed, what do you do? What does our human nature have us do? We hide, right? Like this is the whole whatever. Like wait until your father gets home. And when dad gets home, what does kid do? All of a sudden they're upstairs and they're under the the blankets or whatever. Maybe you grew up in, in that kind of environment, right? Whatever. We hide. When we know that we've been unveiled, we hide. This is our instinct. In some ways, this is a way to interpret a lot of the behavior of our lives is we are so aware that if we were exposed and seen for who we actually are, we would be condemned. And so we hide. We hide behind a whole bunch of stuff. We hide behind our success. We hide behind our biblical knowledge. We hide behind our job. We hide behind whatever it is, right? Like, we hide. This is what we do. This was our instinct from the beginning. This woman is living our greatest fear. Do you see that? Like, I've often said that do you want to understand why Adam and Eve's instinct was to hide? Why, when the prophet Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, instead of being super excited and like, yo, I'm like one of the first people ever to see God. You know what he says? Woe is me! Woe is me! I'm coming apart at the seams. I can feel my body, my soul, my mind. My, it's all disintegrating in the presence of God you've ever wondered okay what's going on there it's because of the distance between our sinfulness and the holiness of God here's here's what that feels like if you'd allow yourself for two seconds to imagine the thing that you would be most I don't know go back to being younger than you are now and like the most shameful thing that you did and now like your hero in life walks in mom dad grandma grandpa walks in in that moment and catches you doing that thing you know what you feel Woe is me. You feel disintegrated. You feel like, oh my gosh, right? This is our greatest fear. This is why we hide so, so um, like, like viciously we don't want to be unveiled. This woman, it's over for her. She's in front of her town, for goodness sake. She's caught in the act. She's like minutes after this, whole, this shameful thing that she's done. And now, unbeknownst to her, she is at the feet of the God of the universe. His holiness, her sinfulness. Now they're alone in that moment. I guess what I think we're supposed to see from this is we will all have this moment. Now, that's, that's not a popular thing to say, but it's, it's, it's one of the deepest truths of the Scripture, is you will someday stand before, not just some nebulous spiritual being who created the universe. We are told that, that each of us will be judged by a man, by Jesus himself. We will stand before him in the nakedness of our sinfulness. All of the worst stuff that we've ever done, fully known by him. At, at his feet, Feeling his holiness, his otherness from us. And it begs the question, what will happen in that moment? What will that be like? Will I just be torched, right? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Which, by the way, is just one of these these details that the Gospels love to put in. The word there is sir, but it's the same word as Lord, like Jesus is Lord, like what the rest of the New Testament calls Jesus. Who knows? Maybe in this moment she has some inkling, some beginning sense of whose presence she's in. I don't know. Maybe she just called him sir as a casual address. It just so happens to be that word. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. This word condemn is this word that means to cast final judgment on. It's even a step beyond judgment. It's also to, to cast your, um, what's it called? Not the verdict and a sentence thank you, what your sentence will be. It's it's not only verdict, it's sentence. It's this is is what you've done and this is what you're going to get as a result. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. They don't get to do that. I'm not going to do that. Which begs some questions. Oh, so these scribes and Pharisees, they were right. Jesus doesn't take the law seriously at all. He's just waving his hand at sin. This was, we've got to get this. You've got to get why so often the religious authorities were most ticked off when Jesus forgave sins. It wasn't because they wanted sins to go unforgiven, right? Like we can caricature these religious leaders. I mean, these guys seem like pretty bad dudes, right? Like they set this person up. But in general, there, there can be this character that, oh, just these evil, wicked, and we create these characters in our mind. No, 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 It's not that they want sin to be unforgiven. They just believe that by waving your hand at sin and saying, oh, it's okay, that that's cheapening sin. And it is. Forgiveness requires a cost. It always does. It requires a cost. You can't just wave your hand, right? Like the the simple analogy I've given before is whatever. I let Rachel borrow my iPhone. She breaks my iPhone. I forgive her, right? But here's the reality. Guess what the only way for that whole situation to be made right is? I've now got to go buy a new iPhone, right? There's a cost. She broke something, there's a cost. Now the other way that she can make it right is through restitution. She buys me a new iPhone and she gets me a new iPhone, which if you wanna do that, Rach, just feel, getting a little old. Do you get it? Forgiveness requires that somebody's gonna pay. So if you just let sin go and wave your hand at it, that cost is gonna be paid often by the people who have been offended. And you're just saying, no, 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 it's not that big of a deal. Right? like This is why when someone has done off, something awful to you, and someone comes to you and says, but have you forgiven them? It's almost always, whoa, 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 too soon. And it is too soon, right? Like, because you're like, I don't know if I want to pay both the cost of what's been done to me and the cost of now having no payment as a recommend, right? Like, it's okay to say, whoa, too soon. Forgiveness is costly. It's costly to the people of God and to these religious authorities because they say, what is the point of going to the temple once a year, killing all these animals, going before God, all of this pageantry that we do, sending in the chief priest with the blood of the sacrifice, seeing if God kills him or not, and hoping that he comes out with actual forgiveness. What's the point of all that? If you can just walk around Jesus and go, your sin is forgiven, all good. It's one of his primary offenses that are brought in his trial. How dare he do that? How dare he do this? Neither do I condemn you. Who's going to pay Jesus? Because there's sin here. Again, the brilliance of the story. There will be one who is brought by the scribes and Pharisees, they will be brought by a mob. to the middle of the place of authority and told this one has done all of these things. Now those will be false charges in that case. Talking about Jesus. Do you see that everything that happens to this woman practically is what ends up happening to Jesus? He's set up. He's brought by the religious authorities. These charges trumped up. In her case, the entrapment. In his case, the the bold face lying. Or the misunderstanding of things like, I'll forgive sin, I'll tear down the temple. And while not stoned, he goes through far worse. He's crucified. He's nailed to a tree. He's hung up for everyone to see. My little guy this week, I think that this was sort of his first Good Friday and Easter that he was really processing things. He had so many, just the one night he opened up and he had so many questions. Why did they have to put him where everyone could see him? What's with the crown of thorns? Why did they do that? And so many of my answers were, they're trying to shame him. They're trying to embarrass him. And it was almost like with each question he asked, I want to say like, enough, buddy, enough, <laughs> like stop asking questions. Stop thinking about this, right? Because the full weight of what Jesus took on was the full weight of what this woman deserved and so much more. You see, the only one who can forgive is the one who is willing to pay the cost. And so when he says, neither do I condemn you, this is far from a simple act of waving his hands. This is him putting his body where hers deserved to be. Guys, this is the gospel. That's why Christianity is really good news. It's not because some religious spiritual guru comes along and says, everything you've done is actually not that big of a deal if you would just believe in yourself a little bit more. And I say you're okay. You're okay, I'm okay. Let's say it together. Everything you've done is totally fine. Sin is not real. Sin is trumped up by religious people. You haven't been hurt as bad as you could. You just need to extinguish those desires. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He says, neither do I condemn you because your condemnation will fall on me. That's no guru, that's a savior, right? And when we cheapen Jesus to just a teacher, just another spiritual authority, we forget, no, 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 what he is primarily is the one who in your place condemned he stood. So he says, neither do I Condemn me. And in saying, neither do I condemn you, he does the very opposite of not taking sin seriously. He takes it with utmost seriousness. He takes it with cosmic seriousness because he knows what it will cause for him to deliver on what he's just said to her. And then famously, that's not where he stops. He says, and from now on, sin no more. And from now on, sin no more. course, again, what he's not saying is, and now you've got to earn it by being morally perfect the rest of your life. I think what he's far more specifically saying is he's saying, look, this lifestyle of adultery, it's not for you. (laughs) It's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to lead to the happiness and the joy. Maybe there's momentary pleasure there, but I am inviting you into a totally different kind of life. And right now is your opportunity to step into that. Because you've got a brand new start, because I'm not condemning you. I'm sending you into a new life, right? Because Jesus just doesn't just give us forgiveness, right? Especially in John's gospel, he gives us new birth, he gives us new life, he gives us a totally new start. Can I talk to the Christians in the room for a second? Yeah, we struggle with what Jesus does here. We either think, that if we take sin seriously, then we've got to point it out in the world. We've got to be bold and call out those sinners out there. We think that to not condemn is to condone. There's a difference between naming sin where it is and condemning people. There is also a difference between not condemning people and condoning sin. So too... Is the call to love others, not a call to condone sin? Younger folks, this is this is, I don't wanna, I don't wanna age everything out and put too fine a point and overgeneralize, blah, 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 blah. But listen, we are living in a cultural moment where you are being told that the only true type of love is a love that waves its hand over sin and condones whatever's out there. Because you're living your truth and I'm living my truth. If Jesus let this woman live her truth, he would have been sending her back into a lifestyle of devastation, disappointment, and hurt. How do we do this? It takes a lot of wisdom. Tell you what, we don't do. We don't start by pointing fingers out there and saying, Those sinners. We got to start with us and say, Okay, where am I complicit? Right? That's what Jesus does here. Where are you complicit in some of this stuff? That'll give you a different perspective on what's out there, right? Got to examine our own hearts. We've then got to figure out what it looks like, and we have good examples, church, of what it looks like to call out sin without condemning people. Saying, no, no, this is where I'm at. We're not going to hide that. This is where we're at on these certain issues. This is where the Bible stands. This is where Jesus stands. This is Jesus' definition of a flourishing life. But he doesn't condemn out of the gate, right? he welcomes. He stands with you in your sin. He says, I'll take it all on me, but not full stop. He says, but then I'll offer you a new kind of life. Right? Salvation is followed by discipleship. We don't have to apologize for that. Salvation is a free offer. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently doing, you stand in front of Jesus and he says, neither do I condemn you. I went to the cross to take all this stuff on me. But I'm not going to leave you in it. And listen, not because you love joy too much. Not because now you've got to prove it. Guys, this is the human heart instinct, which is, I know he saved me, but now I've got to prove that he was right in doing it. That's not the gospel. It's bad news. That, that's just legalism in reverse. It's earning What Jesus did for you. It just moves backwards. That's not what new life is about. New life is about finally tasting true and lasting joy rather than the minute, meaningless, uh, I love the phrase uh, from a few weeks ago, small making kinds of pleasures that this world offers us. Neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. That's the gospel and the order matters more than anything else in this whole passage. Sin no more, and I won't condemn you. That's not, that's not the mechanics of grace. It's just not. The mechanics of grace are grace first, transform life as a result. And if you say that doesn't work, it doesn't work, you've never experienced it. You don't know what it's like to, to really experience forgiveness. To really be like, I know that God knows me in the worst of what I've done. But I have a sense that that he doesn't condemn me. And that even my continued frustration with some of that old stuff that I had to bring to him at the very beginning. Some of that old stuff that still lives here. That my frustration is actually that new life being birthed to me. And going, this ain't who you are anymore, buddy. We've got to get better, church, at embodying this for each other. Because a lot of the reason why a lot of us still hide in our sin is because we know that the, one of the only ways to really get out of that is to bring that to someone else, not just to God quietly in prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great uh, theologian of the last century in Germany, um, uh, Bonhoeffer's the best. Um, He said, he would often say the reason why we don't experience true absolution from our sin is because we are actually trying to give it to ourselves when God has given us our brother or sister to be the ones who can embody God's forgiveness for us. In other words, it can be really hard to forgive yourself by just praying, 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 praying. But you bring that to a brother or sister, and they look at you and they say, neither do I condemn you. And then they say, but go and sin no more, and I'm going to help you. Now grace is operating. Now grace is embodied. Now something is happening in us that says, oh, my new life can start from this. <laughs> I was talking to Rachel about this. Um, uh, true confessions. I preached on this passage like 10 years ago. Um, I was wearing a sweater vest. Um, but uh, and, and there was an illustration there that I went back and forth on, on sharing, and, and I just feel compelled to share it. I have no, I even said this 10 years, I have no idea where I heard this. In a book, in something, in a sermon, somewhere. So credit where credit is due. Um, story of a man whose wife had been unfaithful to him for some time. And this came out, and, and um, they went through a process of forgiveness and reconciliation. And, but before they, they sort of formally were, were going to move forward in marriage, the husband did the most extraordinary thing. He took water, and he he washed his wife's feet. He said, may these feet only ever pursue me. He washed her hands, and he says, may may these hands only ever be mine to hold in marriage. And he he just went over her whole body. Because what she needed was an embodied experience of the cleansing that's really hard to conceptualize just in our heads. In a letter that this gospel writer writes later on in his life, as far as we can tell, in 1 John, he says these words. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Think about that. Most of us, when we're revealed in that kind of way, think, I hope this is the moment where God presses the mercy button." If we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins, right? What's the passage say? He is faithful and why? Because of the gospel. Because Jesus took on the full weight and penalty for your sin. And now check this out. God is not bound by his grace to forgive you. He is bound by his commitment to justice to forgive you. And then here's what it says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, bound by his justice to forgive us our sins. And what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the reasons we hide is because we feel that internal blech, right? What the gospel does is it doesn't just say, I forgive you, it goes to the deepest parts of who we are. And it cleanses those parts and it says, may this heart only ever Be first in allegiance towards me, your king, your savior. It goes to our souls and it says, your souls long for me more than it longs for the temporary pleasures of this life. It goes to to parts of us that we thought were tucked away and it says, no, 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 I'm going to open that and I'm going to cleanse that and I'm going to make that right. The gospel goes where we don't want it to go. The cleansing the forgiveness of Jesus goes where it doesn't want us to go. And yet, when it goes there, we are forever changed. That's the gospel. right? May you hear spoken over your life today, neither does Jesus condemn you. Therefore, therefore, not insofar as. Right? Thank, thank God, literally, he did not say that. Neither do I condemn you insofar as you don't go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Therefore. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for this simple but profound.